four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. This is UniversalExports.co. Hello, the listener. The following is part three of an article, Bushfire Management, Wisdom versus Folly, written by Roger Underwood and published in Quadrant on February 13, 2019, which is almost exactly one year from today. I am posting this in the public interest, and you may not agree with everything Roger has to say, but in light of the current bushfire situation in Australia as we speak, I believe there is a lot to be considered in this essay. Please enjoy. It is all very well to say that the management objective for our parks, forests and reserves is protection of biodiversity, as most national parks agencies say these days. The trouble is, this objective cannot be achieved without first having put in place an effective bushfire management system. Where is the biodiversity today in those thousands of hectares of bushland without a green leaf to be seen, those bare, ruined choirs where no birds sing? It is the same in areas where the stated management priority is to protect water catchments. But to say this, and then adopt a strategy that allows fuels to build up until the day comes when the catchments are reduced to dead trees and ash, is blatantly self-defeating. And it is the same for every other land management objective, whether this be protection of aesthetics and lovely forest landscapes, protection of recreational areas, protection of commercial values and residential areas, or the conservation of soil, remnant bushland on farms, or threatened species. Therefore, the first rule of Land Management Australian is this. Get your bushfire management right, or be prepared to lose the lot. I began with a reference to World War I, and the futility of the strategies adopted by the generals throughout the first three and a half years of the war. It is significant that the breakthrough in 1918, the new strategy, was designed by an Australian, indeed a Victorian, General Sir John Monash. The Monash strategy was based on firstly establishing clear priorities and unambiguous objectives. He knew exactly what he wanted from amongst the options of what could be achieved. It was based on excellent planning, anticipation of difficulties and attention to detail. It was based on the advice of experts, men who had been at Gallipoli and in the trenches in France and Belgium and who spoke from experience on the ground, not from ideology. Above all, Monash was not prepared to sacrifice human lives needlessly. With all of this behind them, the troops on the ground did the rest. Monash's new approach provided the blueprint for the end of the slaughter on the Western Front. What Australian bushfire management is crying out for is a new General Monash, a leader who understands that the current approach has failed and is doomed to continuing failure, that the influential advisers have no frontline experience. An effective new leader will know that if we clarify and properly rank our objectives, listen to the voices of experience and the lessons of history and act accordingly, the odds favouring success will be massively shortened. But the great General Monash himself would not succeed without the support of Prime Ministers, Premiers and Ministers prepared to stand firm behind him when the Wilderness Society, the Canberra Intelligentsia and the ABC Current Affairs people gang up on him. A good response to this lot might be, Sorry mates, we are doing what is best for Australian and Australians based on good science, experience, the word from the people who have most to lose. Politically incorrect of course, 
but it is the approach adopted when it comes to defence of the country against external enemies and national security, and which most Australians accept in that context. Nor will a new general succeed without legislative and policy backing to enable land management agencies to win back the ground they have lost to the emergency services. Our park and forest agencies must be empowered and resourced to manage fuels. Indeed, they must be required to do so, if necessary, by legislation. Australia must abandon the American approach, replacing it with an Australian approach, a system in which equal weight is given to the prevention and suppression, rather than trying, helplessly, to pile all our eggs in the suppression basket. For any of this to happen, our political leaders need to hear from the people whose lives and assets have been sacrificed or recklessly put at risk by the failed policies of the past. It is essential that the people who have suffered demand systemic change, not just window dressing, more helicopters and overseas firefighters. Unless they speak up, there is no chance they will be heard. Politicians will take the political way out. I think we can say that the environmental approach to bushfire management, including reliance on aerial firefighting, has been given a very fair go. It has had a good test. Regrettably, and predictably, the results reveal that it has been a failure. The excuses put forward, especially that fires are unstoppable because of global warming, are simply that, excuses. They do not allow for the capacity of they do not allow for the capacity of intelligent humans to foresee a threat and to forestall it. The choices before us are straightforward. Do Australians want our bushfire and land management planning done by professionals with frontline experience or by campus intellectuals and ideologists? It is smarter to manage bushfire fuels by burning them at times of our own choosing when conditions are mild, or to stand back, do nothing and risk being engulfed by fire at the worst possible time. If fires are inevitable, which is preferable, a controlled or a feral fire? And do we see humans as part of the ecosystem and plan accordingly, or do we see them as interlopers, as illegal immigrants in the Australian bush? The question of Aboriginal burning is still debated. According to the accounts of early explorers and settlers and to present-day Aborigines, pre-European burning was widespread and frequent. This information is rejected by environmentalists as hearsay. Western Australian ecologist David Ward has found a unique way to unlock the history of pre-European burning through his study of fire scars on grass trees. Ward's work in the Jarrah forests of Western Australia indicate that fire occurred there at intervals of two to four years, and combined with his understanding of fuel dynamics and fire behaviour, he concludes that these fires would have been of mild intensity and patchy. Academics from Melbourne University, without ever having worked in a Jarrah forest, have dismissed Ward's findings, preferring the printouts from a theoretical computer model. Not everyone agrees about the environmental impact of large, intense wildfires. Dr Ross Bradstock, who lectures to undergraduates in the Australian National University, has written in an article in the Melbourne Age newspaper that there was no scientific evidence for the claims that millions of birds and mammals died or that forest diversity was reduced in the Victorian Alpine fires in 2003. Laura Meredith, writing of her home in Tasmania in 1840, records a time when her husband was away and bushfires were threatening her home. She discovered with relief that her husband had taken the wise precaution of burning the ferns over the whole of the wide span of the forest which surrounds us. Thus the home was rendered safe. The best book written on fire in Australia is Stephen Pine's Burning Bush. 
first published in 1991 and updated following the 2003 fall fires. But there are also numerous books on fire science and history, including the excellent Fire and Hearth by the anthropologist Sylvia Hallam. Hallam quotes Lord Stokes, a fellow traveller with Charles Darwin on the Beagle, who watched as Aboriginal people near Albany carried out their routine burning of the bush, replacing, in Stokes' words, fires of ungovernable fury with those of complete docility. In the very week leading up to the Victorian Black Saturday, Western Australian bushfire managers found themselves dealing with a Greens Member of Parliament who was threatening to organise a protesters' camp in the bush to prevent a prescribed burn. Burn was planned to protect two local townships plus some very lovely forest from wildfire. As Shakespeare pointed out, a little fire is quickly trodden out. But being suffered, rivers will not quench. Many of those who oppose prescribed burning believe that if we simply had enough of firefighters permanently waiting in the bush for fires to start and able to tread them at the instant of the ignition, no large fires would ever occur. Firefighters regard this as impractical. In eucalypt forests carrying heavy dry fuels, a fire can become too fierce to allow direct attack by firefighters within minutes of ignition, indicating that the treading out approach would require several million firefighters with very heavy boots on standby throughout the Australian forests for several months of every year. Dryland Australia is the bulk of the continent. Outside the tropical rainforests of the north, some of the wet temperate rainforests of southern Tasmania and coastal mangroves it is the Australia that burns. The Project Vesta research, a 10-year study completed in Australia in 2007, involved a collaboration of CSIRO, government agencies and the Bushfire Cooperative Research Centre. It represents the most comprehensive and technically defensible bushfire research program ever carried out anywhere in the world. The results unequivocally support the value of prescribed burning as a means of reducing bushfire intensity and puts forward new approaches to fuel management and characterisation. More research is needed, is the standard response of academics and scientists to any issue. This is because they depend on research grants to pay their salaries and expenses. In Australia, the fundamental questions about fire behaviour and fuels management have already been answered, going back to the work by Alan MacArthur, Phil Cheney, George Peat and Rick Schneegevat in the 1960s and 1970s and on building the design by the CSIRO, going back to the Tasmanian fires of 1967 and the Ash Wednesday fires of 1983. The pressing requirements today are for refining fire behaviour tables and developing prescribed burning guides for various forest types. In other words, for applied or operational research which builds on current knowledge. This sort of work can only be carried out by bushfire experienced researchers in the field, not by theoretical analysts and computer experts in academia. The bushfire cycle runs thus. First, there is a disastrous bushfire. This is followed by inquiries, commissions and reviews, and the system is greatly upgraded. Over subsequent years, the new system is so effective that there are no serious bushfires. Apathy and complacency set in. Weirdo pressure groups arise and governments lose interest and funds and staff are reduced. The system degrades. Then there is another bushfire disaster and the wheel revolves once more. According to the doyen of Canberra Intellectuals, Professor Clive Hamilton, speaking on ABC's Radio National recently, the most interesting thing about the recent Victorian bushfires has been the attacks on greenies. 
Apparently, he did not find the loss of over 100 lives as interesting as the ruffling of the feathers of a few environmental activists. Les Carlion, in his magnificent book The Great War, notes that Monash's final planning conference before the attack on Hamill in 1918 had an agenda of 133 items. Elsewhere, it is recorded that the then Colonel Monash, commanding Australian troops at Gallipoli in 1915, set up his command HQ 30 metres from the Turkish front trenches. The fundamental issue and the basis of the whole difficulty facing professional bushfire managers is very well summed up by Mr Jim Hacker, fictional Minister for Administrative Service in the television series Yes Minister. There are times in a politician's life when he is obliged to take the wrong decision, wrong economically, wrong industrially, wrong by any standards, except one. It is a curious fact that something which is wrong from every other point of view can be right politically, and something which is right politically does not simply mean that it is the way to get the votes, which it is, but also if a policy gets the votes, then it can be argued that the policy is what the people want. And, in a democracy, how can a thing be wrong if it is what the people will vote for? It was notable that some of the worst of the recent fire damage in Victoria occurred in the dark, at night, or under gale-force winds when aerial water bombers were grounded. This is consistent with my own experience. In 1978, I was the officer in charge in the Kari Forest in Western Australia during the Cyclone Elby bushfire crisis. The first thing we had to do as the cyclonic winds approached was to ground all our aircraft and tie them down. Roger Underwood is a forester with 50 years experience in bushfire management and bushfire science. He has worked as a firefighter, a district and regional manager, a research manager and a senior government administrator. He is chairman of the Bushfire Front, an independent professional group promoting best practice in bushfire management.